This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Welcome to the program. We are pleased to note that today's show is our 300th program here at KDVS, most of which can be heard and are archived on our website, radioparallax.com. It's hard to believe that we first uh, broadcast here by being a guest on Dr. Andy Jones's Poetry and Technology Hour back in June of 2002. We've done our best to be interesting and informative, and we certainly have had a great deal of fun bringing you some of the distinguished guests we have had the great pleasure of interviewing. When we started, it would have been a lot to hope for to have interviewed the likes of Walter Cronkite, Daniel Shore, uh, Bill Moyers, Senator Eugene McCarthy, Ira Flato from NPR, Ambassador Joe Wilson, or Willie Brown, but, uh, you know, we've interviewed all those and more. And uh, Mr. Merrill and I are certainly indebted to the good people down here at KDVS who have uh, permitted us to have this forum for these past almost six years. And ultimately, of course, uh, KDVS depends upon you, dear listener, to keep it going, which thankfully you do. And how's that for a prelude to our to next month's Pledge Drive? It might actually be a good time to say, uh, you know, uh, thanks to all of you for listening and supporting us. For our 300th program today, we have a very special theme. Why Genghis Khan wasn't such a bad guy. <laughs> and you think we're kidding. No, actually, if you listen to this program, you know we're not. Joining us in segment two will be Dr. Jack Weatherford author of the very interesting Genghis Khan and the Making of the Modern World. It was a New York Times bestseller for good reason. We will be speaking to Dr. Weatherford in our second segment today. And you may recall us mentioning last October how we'd like to uh, bring uh, Tim Cope, the Australian gentleman who basically followed in the footsteps of Genghis Khan from Mongolia to Hungary, and we certainly have uh, Tim uh, exchanging emails with us, and our hope is before this hour is out, we will bring you to him in our third segment. Tim uh, is a busy guy. He's doing a bit of film editing down in his native Australia, but uh, he certainly will be on the program, if not today, soon. But let's cross our fingers. We'll see what we can do for our third segment. Let us begin the show as we like to do with On This Date in History, which is March 6th. It was March 6th in 1836 in the Texas War for Independence that Mexican troops overran the Alamo in San Antonio after besieging the defended outpost for 13 days. Nearly all of the 184 Texan defenders were killed, but they inflicted heavy casualties on the Mexican army. And although we would have liked to have had him on this week's show, on next week's program, we're going to bring my good friend Dr. Victor Contreras on this program to give us a Mexican-American perspective on the Alamo. Because although we are all familiar with the Texans' version of what took place down there in 1836, it would be nice to get a little bit more balanced perspective, which includes the Mexican viewpoint of that conflict. So by God, we'll do it. You know we will. It was on March 6th in 1857, at the end of an 11-year legal battle, that Dred Scott, a slave from Missouri, was told that he must remain a slave. Dred Scott and his wife had filed suit for their freedom, but the U.S. Supreme Court issued a clear victory for slave-holding southern states 
by ruling that Congress and territorial governments were powerless to exclude slavery from American territories. The case added significantly to the tensions that led to the American Civil War four years later. It would be our editorial edition that took the Supreme Court 143 years to equal the wretchedness of that decision with Bush v. Gore in 2000. And it was on March 6, 1964, that American heavyweight boxing champ, newly crowned, we might add, Cassius Clay, changed his name to Muhammad Ali. And uh, this correspondent certainly does feel sorry for those listeners too young to remember the bouts of Muhammad Ali. He was a showman extraordinaire, and he certainly transcended boxing. He was also a true genius at self-promotion, noting one time, They can boo me, yell at me, and throw peanuts at me, as long as they pay to get in. Our quote of the day comes from former President Andrew Jackson, the man on the $20 bill, who noted, It is to be regretted that the rich and powerful too often bend the acts of government to their selfish purposes. Our quip of the day, and we have two on the same subject related to Ralph Nader getting into the 2008 presidential race. Come first from Jay Leno, who said, Nader says he's running for president again because the Democrats did not stop President Bush on the war in Iraq and on tax cuts. Stop him? If Nader hadn't run, there wouldn't have been a President Bush. And secondly, noting Craig Ferguson, Ralph Nader announced he's running for president again. His announcement has filled millions of people with excitement and hope. Those people are called Republicans. Our statistic of the day is as follows. According to U.S. News and World Report, an estimated 20% of drivers send or receive text messages while driving, according to an insurance industry study. And if that wasn't bad enough, in the 18 to 24-year-old demographic, that figure soars to 66%. Yes, thankfully, at least 16 states are considering legislation to ban the practice. Okay, dear listeners, if you're in any age group and you're text messaging, if you must, please, pull over. Our joke of the day is as follows. A Florida couple in their 80s goes to a sex therapist. The doctor asks, what can I do for you? The man says, we'd like you to watch us have intercourse. The therapist is surprised, but agrees. When they finish, he says, I see nothing wrong with the way you have intercourse. Charges him 50 bucks. The next week, the couple returns, asks the therapist to watch again. He's puzzled, but again agrees. This goes on several weeks. Finally, the doctor says, I'm sorry, but I see no problem here. What are we trying to accomplish? The man says, here's the deal. She's married. We can't go to her house. I'm married. We can't go to mine. The Holiday Inn charges 103 bucks. The Hilton is 209. If we do it in your office, it's 50 bucks. And I get 43 back from Medicare. And we'd like to thank Roger out in Rockland for sending us that one. All right, let's do the good, the bad, and the ugly. It 
It was a good week last week for James Bond wannabes when it was noted that the Swiss company Rinspeed has built the world's first truly functional underwater car. The electric-powered car, and we should note that photos reveal that it is a convertible, can do 77 miles an hour on land, 3 miles on the surface of water, and 1.5 miles per hour at a depth of 30 feet. The craft is a pet project of Rinspeed's CEO, Frank Rindernecht, who'd been consumed with the idea ever since he saw Roger Moore drive his submersible Lotus in the 1977 Bond film, The Spy Who Loved Me. It was, conversely, a bad week for public relations after International Falls, Minnesota, won a federal trademark case which now officially makes it the icebox of the nation. Reportedly, the good people of International Falls celebrated by huddling around their wood-burning stoves as temperatures plunged to 40 below zero. And finally, it was an ugly week this week for fans of quality cinema when it was revealed that Sylvester Stallone is expected to take over the Death Wish franchise made famous in five films by the late Charles Bronson. If you've been unlucky enough to see one of those films, I'm sure you'll note uh, the the vast body count uh, that ensues as uh, everyone seems to shoot everyone when they're not stabbing them, blowing them up, uh, or hitting them with the two-by-fours with nails sticking out. We do think there might be one silver lining to this cloud, however. He may stop making Rocky and Rambo films. Joining us now in the program is our environmental correspondent, Jennifer Davidson. Welcome back, Jen. Hi, Doug. Thanks for having me. Happy to be here as always. Well, uh, we're happy to have you. We should note uh, for the benefit of our listeners that you and I, oddly enough, will be appearing on television on Jeannie Keltner's Sacramento Soapbox program on cable access on the 17th of this month. That's right. And in case people are wondering, I'm the one with blonde hair and blue eyes. (laughs) Yes. Yes, there may be some confusion there. I've always had a good face for radio, and uh, hopefully you can help out in that department. Oh, we're going to try. <laughs> uh, well, yeah, indeed we are. Uh, Jen, just want to have you come on a little bit today for our 300th program and, uh, and talk a little bit about a topic that you and I were kicking around some time back, the fact that uh, tourists go to places like Cabo San Lucas, Mazatlan, uh, Hawaii, and hire a sport fisherman to take them out to try and catch a big fish. Right. I'd like to, I'd like to get your reaction to that. Well, I'm not really sure what the lure is to uh, kill a creature merely to kill it, but men have tried to explain it to me at various times. They say it's the hunt and the ability to be successful to do that. But, you know, if you're looking at 
big game sport fishing, if you're looking at the idea of doing it, all the advertisements for the sport are merely photos of boatfuls of dead giant fish. And yeah. they're these in- amazing, gorgeous, breathtaking yeah. species that, that most of us aren't ever going to see in the wild. We're talking about marlin and sailfish and yellowfin tunas, roosterfish, just these glorious species. And, of course, there's always the photo of the man who wants the moment captured in perpetuity. Right. The smiling guy in shorts with the, with the marlin hanging behind him. Right. With no shirt on. Right. Yeah. Exactly. We should note that what they do is they, they hire at a considerable price to have the, 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 the captain take them out where he knows where to find the fish. The guy then has, has his line baited. They toss it in. He sits there in the chair, and then if he's lucky, he catches a big fish thanks to spending, you know, X amount of dollars. Right. And, you know, the other part of the lure to sport, sport fishing is you get to go to some of the most beautiful places on Earth, and you get to experience and, and potentially interact with this incredibly rich, diverse marine life. And that in itself is amazing. I've been to the Sea of Cortez, and life's going to have to work pretty hard to match my underwater experiences there. I mean, they are literally out of this world. They were, for me. And when I think about that environment being destroyed or an element of it disappearing, and it's what we leave behind to our children, it's absolutely horrifying. We should note, too, there's been recent studies showing that commercial fishing is basically, by taking the largest specimens of various species out of the sea, is actually hurting their reproduction. Right, because the larger ones are the ones that are capable of reproducing. You take all the ones out that, that are able to reproduce, there's none to propagate the species. This should allow us to seamlessly refer our listeners to our archives. A few years back, we interviewed a National Geographic film documentarian, Michael Bana, who uh, in, his, in his documentary, Tuna Cowboys, showed how various Australian commercial fishermen were going out capturing the adolescent, the smaller tuna, bringing them back and then growing them up to larger size when they could then uh, fetch higher prices, allowing the largest fish to stay back out where they belong reproducing. Well, you know, I haven't heard that show, but it well, sounds well, Jen, like Well, Jen, you need to go back to our archives and listen to that. <laughs> well, I think I'll do that. Good enough. So, Jen, I guess I'll see you over the TV studios week after next. Okay, sounds great. I'll see you there. Because I need to move. I need to wake up. I need to change. I need to shake. And from the Only in America file, we have this item. It appears for the first time in many a year that one of the major political parties here in America may hold its nominating convention without someone being the clear-cut favorite for the nomination. For the past 40 years, nominating conventions have just been pretty much meaningless rituals, but uh, the prospect has arisen that that will not be the case for the Democrats this summer. The last time it really came down to two individuals was in 1976 when uh, the incumbent president, Gerald Ford, narrowly outmaneuvered ex-California governor Ronald Reagan for the nomination on the Republican ticket. The most contentious of modern conventions was that of the Democrats back in 1968. I must say it uh, gives us great pleasure to contemplate the fact that we did speak with Senator Eugene McCarthy, who is now passed on, uh, on this program about that convention. 
Eugene McCarthy was the anti-war candidate, and he'd, uh, he'd entered many a primary. The nomination, unfortunately, went to Hubert Humphrey, who was sitting President Lyndon Bain Johnson's vice president and the man he wanted to be the party's nominee. And uh, for you historians out there in the audience, I'd like to note that we did get a chance to ask Senator McCarthy a what if, looking back to 1968, if Bobby Kennedy had not entered the race and split the anti-war vote, I asked the senator, do you think he would have had enough momentum to have gotten the nomination? Somewhat to my surprise, he answered no, he didn't think so. Anyway, rest assured, in the weeks and months to come, we're going to be returning to the topic of the uh, presidential race. This would be an excellent time for us to pause and get a word from our pal, Will Durst, America's foremost political comic. Well, thanks, Doug. And today I'm here to marvel at the fact that Hillary Clinton is still alive. You just can't keep the girl down. She's like one of those zombies who you shoot and you stab and you knock upside the head with a nail-studded 2x4 dipped in some rare poison, but she just keeps coming at you. I don't know if she sold her soul to the devil or Bill had a natural congress with a rutting voodoo queen. I just know it's got to be frustrating as hell for Obama, who's got to be wondering exactly what is it going to take to put the soulless banshee down. Maybe a silver bullet or a stake through the heart. Maybe those would work, but even then, I'd advise him not to turn his back on her. Because every time he looks straight into the camera and reaches out triumphantly to take the Democratic damsel in his arms, her face pops up behind him with an evil gleam in her eye, chewing the arm of some super delegate in her mouth while reaching out with both arms for his neck. She walks the earth as one of the undead. Then, to add insult to injury, after eking out victories in both the must-win states of Texas and Ohio and Rhode Island, she mentioned that she wouldn't mind sharing the ticket with the junior senator from Illinois. Of course, the question of who would be on top? Still up for debate. But isn't that true in pretty much every relationship? Democrats call it the dream ticket. And it's called that because if you even for a minute believe that America would elect both a black man and a woman at the same time, you're dreaming. So if I were Barack, I'd sleep with one eye open and some guard dogs hanging around the bed and maybe a string of garlic around your neck while you sleep. You know, just in case. For Radio Parallax, I'm Will Durst. You're listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. Said Dr. Jack Weatherford, although he arose out of an ancient tribal past, Genghis Khan shaped the modern world of commerce, communication, and large secular states more than any other individual. He was the thoroughly modern man in his mobilized and professional warfare and in his commitment to global commerce and the rule of international secular law. That is certainly not the view you're used to hearing about the conqueror Genghis Khan. So let's kick that one around after a short break. 